Hello and welcome to Revisiting the Oscars. This is the first episode of 2022. Who would have thought we'd have made it into a third calendar year of talking a lot of rubbish about a lot of different films that were nominated for Oscars over the year. I am Luke Watson, one of your hosts, and as always, joined by Mr. Richard Mason and Mr. Scott Bingham. How are we doing, folks? We're settling into a new year. Yeah, they said it was just going to be a lockdown phase, and here we are in year three. There might be some people that have started this year with some New Year's resolutions to do some lofty goals like get fit, eat healthier, drink a bit less... And some people might have ones like start a new podcast in terms of listening to one. So if you are one of those people and you're joining us for the first time on Revisiting the Oscars, we'll just give you a little bit of an intro about what it is that we actually do on this podcast. So we are three folks from Scotland and England in the good old United Kingdom. And we're all film enthusiasts or cinephiles to varying degrees. We basically take one year in Oscar history over the last 50 years and talk about the films that were nominated for Best Picture that year. A little bit of critique, a little bit of trivia, some random nonsense. So hopefully if you are joining us you will enjoy the episode and please comment, get involved with us on Twitter. We do always like some letters and some extra things that you can give us to talk about. But as regular listeners know, there is a tried and tested way that we kick off each new episode And that is a little bit of a trip back to the year that we're covering. In this case, 2003. So we'll start with Bingham's Blast from the Past. Come closer. Come closer. Come come, 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 come closer. Bingham's Blast from the Past. Close your eyes and visualise this. You come to, to the feeling of muddy wellies soaking your feet in wild eyes. You wish you could hide your head, but someone pished inside your Von Dutch cap last night. What the hell am I doing at Download <laughs> Festival? Standing in your cargo pants with a dog tag round your neck, you laugh fish out of water. Surrounded by a mirage of mascara, pierced eyebrows and dyed black hair. How did you let your mate drag you here? You wish you were at home watching Ronaldo make his Man United debut, or even watching a bit of Brookside. Hell, you'd even rather watch the Iraq War in BBC News. Instead, you're surrounded by goths, emos and moshers heed-banging to Marlon Manson. Give these lads a bit of Sean Paul tattoo, show them some real tunes. You look around, you've lost your mates and your trusty Sony Ericsson's deed. However, you seem to be taken in by a group of misfits clad in floor-length leather jackets. Powered by a concoction of substances, maybe this isn't so bad. Everybody's dancing. Wait, they're rapping. Are they taking the piss out of me? <laughs> nah, they're just they're just listening to a bit of Limp Biscuit. They invite you back to their tent for some more bevy. Oh well, might as well roll with it. You're enjoying yourself. Why not? Maybe this isn't so bad after all. Maybe these guys just are misunderstood. You approach the tent, you see a big crowd to your surprise. Okay, maybe it's a wee party. However, as you get closer... The crowd's in a circle watching something, watching something very weird. A spectacle, like a circus act. In the middle, there's a car battery with two wires connected. It's switched on. You follow the wires up with your eyes, and to your horror, you see the crocodile clips are clamped onto the nipples of two naked guys cuddling each other. Screw this, I'm going up the road to put the heat down. 
you've picked and download festival there, but I'm pretty sure weird stuff like that happened at every festival that I was at, regardless of how mainstream or niche it was. Um, that, that actually happened to one of my mates who got dragged. I knew there was some truth to it. It was it was it was too obscure for it to be made up. I knew that would be rude and true. Were you one of the guys with the nipple clamps? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, I was uh, triggered at the start of that because I did have a Von Dutch hat, I'm afraid to say. 2003, you'd have been in the middle of my hip-hop phase. <laughs> I, I was thinking about you when I was describing what my um, guy was wearing. I've had a bleach blonde hair and, and a Von Dutch hat and listened to uh, 50 Cent. 50, I think 2003 is 50 Cent's first album. Oh, I'd have been well into that. A bit of uh, in the club. Do you go to any festivals around about this period, Mason? Um, no. I mean, I went to Magaluf, if that counts as a festival. I got my arm, I got my arm autographed by uh, Tim Westwood. <laughs> yeah, surely people don't still listen to him. Hey, look, he was, st- he was old then, and now 20 years on, he's still like doing student nights. Also in 2003, now, probably the, the main reason that people are listening to this episode, other than our regular fan base, of course, is that this is the year of Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. The final film in the trilogy, which... Spoiler alert, swept everything away in the Oscars this year. We're going to be talking about some other films, though. We'll also cover Lost in Translation, Mystic River, Master and Commander, and Seabiscuit, before we get on to talking about Middle Earth again. Now, we will go through our usual rundown of the top five highest grossing films of the year. Fifth this year was Bruce Almighty, which is Jim Carrey comedy, Kind of the last successful comedy of his after that quite remarkable run in the 90s. He would do Eternal Sunshine the following year, which, as we discussed on the 2004 episode, is great. Fans of Jim Carrey and his comedy? Yeah, I had almost exactly the same thing written down with this. Like, this was the mark of his hot, sh- or the end of his hot streak, wasn't it? And I was like, I remember there was a big, like, furore around Bruce Almighty, and then it came out, and everyone realised it was. Bit of shit and was like no one near as good as like the Truman Show and Liar Liar. Uh, I don't know because yeah, like Liar Liar has been true that kind of the thing. The Cable Guy as well. Like, late nineties is what I think of as Jim Carrey. Obviously, he sold it. That's why it got to number five in the charts. But I'm not surprised that he uh, would flop comedy wise after this because it ain't that great. Blue Almighty. I, I, I prefer an Evan Almighty. I prefer an Evan Almighty. It's a bit of Steve Carell. Well, that's rubbish. Okay, even all right, he's a bit rubbish too, but I'm not a fan of this film either. Is this the one where God is Morgan Freeman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, also, Evan Almighty. To play God. It's, a, it's a great shout. He's got the voice, he's got the gravitas, absolutely. The fourth one on the list, and I think in uh, my talk about Bastard and Commander, I will reference this a couple of times, but it's Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. This was the, the first one in that series. I actually got Johnny Depp an Oscar nod, which was his first nomination, and first to three over a five-year period. This has gone on to become a very successful series, maybe more so commercially than critically. What are your thoughts on the first Pirates of the Caribbean film? I think this first one's all right. It goes on to be shite, and they're clearly milking it by the end when they've got four and five Pirates of the Caribbean films. But this first one's a good little adventure. You know, and I know it's got a couple of wooden bits of acting. Johnny Depp aside, who I think does a great role, and clearly this is the role he was born to play. But uh, I think it's a bit of a romp. You know, you can't go wrong, really, with this. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. It's loads of fun. I mean, Johnny Depp spent the rest of his career morphing into his character. <laughs> just looks, he still looks like him now. The one thing that always made me laugh about this film, it was based on a ride at a theme park, which yeah. to me seems like a very unlikely foundation for a very popular movie franchise. I mean, has anybody been on the ride? Has anyone been to Florida and been on it? I don't even, what even would it be? Just a big ship that goes up and down a, like a roller coaster. I don't know what it is. It's, it's like a... You, you go through like a very light river rapids. It's very child-friendly. I'm pretty sure I must have been on it because I've been to a couple of the theme parks in Florida before, but the Disney ones were always super expensive. You were better yeah. with Islands of Adventure Universal. And, and Universal, yeah. The third most successful film of this year was The Matrix Reloaded, which was the sequel to the original Matrix. So this was the first sequel. No, I've, I have seen this, but I remember nothing about it. Couldn't tell you the plot. I couldn't tell you if it's the same characters. I mean, I guess Keanu's in it, but I don't know if any of the other ones are in it. I mean, the Matrix is finished. It's a nice rounded, rounded story. I don't know why they've clearly needed to milk another one out of it. It's got quite a good couple of chase scenes in it, or act like sort of crazy action sequences, but the underlying story wasn't as good. I remember thinking, this is fine. It's like a six out of ten type like sequel. Not terrible, not, not great. You're not going to remember it, which I think is what we're saying. Indeed, and then the second one, this film was the Best Animated Film winner at the Oscars this year, and it was actually Pixar's first win, granted the awards had only been going for a couple of years at this time, Finding Nemo. Yeah, so this one falls into that strange category that we've created on this podcast, which is my wife Sarah's category of the sequel being better than the original, apparently. It's not, though! That's just nonsense! That's rubbish. So I, I, I was questioning this. I, I've got no strong views on this, to be honest, but apparently, so for, I, I do get the rationale. So finding Nemo, uh, Nemo is a proper wetlet, wetlet, so Dory's the kind of more interesting character and has some sort of superpower. I don't know, I can't remember. Nemo's a little child fish. I, I mean, <laughs> what, you wouldn't call like a two-year-old kid a wet lettuce, some of you would. <laughs> but, oh, he's, he's just a little lost fish whose dad wants to find him. This is Mars Matt in the sequel. The sequel is, they've obviously thought that Dory was a funny character, and so let's build a whole film around her. And Ellen's got a very annoying voice, if you ask me. I think Dory's annoying too. And uh, as you say, the, all they've done is basically just recreate the first film, but with Dory yeah. getting lost. No, sorry. Sarah might know her Disney, but she is wrong on this one. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) Uh, And Lord of the Rings Return of the King was the highest grossing film by a long stretch, and we will come back to that one, of course. Now, I think uh, we might have a couple of letters in the post-bag before we we start talking Oscars this year. So, yeah, so let's enter the post-bag. Entering the post bag, I believe that we have something in there from the Arrogant Ambassador, who is back in touch again. Oh yeah, so Arrogant Ambassador tweeted and he said, Not Lord of the Rings again. Can't believe you lads love that weirdo Dungeons and Dragons franchise pish, you bunch of weirdos. So clearly he started 2022 not in a better frame of mind. It's interesting because when I picture when I picture Arrogant Ambassador, he's well into his Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I can see him playing Dungeons and Dragons. But listen, Mr. Ambassador, we don't pick the films, we just pick the years. If the years have got a Lord of the Rings in it, we've got to watch it. Yeah, exactly. 
I mean, he's maybe just a bit annoyed that we don't have any truly British films this year, although there are are a few British actors about, so maybe that'll satisfy you, Mr Ambassador. Perhaps you better listen before you uh, claims that we love The Lord of the Rings, because maybe we don't. (laughs) And we have a, a letter in from at Malcolm Loves Movies, and his question is, what is your approach to collating notes on the films before you talk about them? Do you do it whilst watching, or do you do it after? So he's, he's, a, he's looking for a peek behind the curtain here is Malcolm. Uh, well, funnily enough, Malcolm, one of my Christmas presents from my lovely wife was a brand new notebook <laughs> to uh, make my notes in for the, uh, for the podcast. So I did start doing it on my phone when I was watching the films and I thought, actually, no, I'm going to go old school. I wanna, I'm watching most of these at home. I want to write it with a pen and paper. So I will pause the film, much to her annoyance, write my little note out and then press play again. And then that also means that at the end of the film, I'm able to ask her what she thought and then cross all my notes out and just write down what she thought. <laughs> this is that same very 1970s of you, the note, but you, we're going to have like an international incident when you get like, take it somewhere out the house by accident, leave it in a taxi and forget about it. Be screwed for one of the next episodes. <laughs> when this podcast blows up like, at the, like Joe Rogan's, then um, there'll be people bidding for that on eBay. That'll be a prized <laughs> uh, possession. I think we need to get some nutters on as guests if we want to catch up with Joe Rogan. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> that. Be screwed, man. Folk would be fact checking shit that I'd be saying. <laughs> I, I don't really have anything really that interesting to say. I, I mean, I just write notes on the hoof during the film on my phone and then, then I look back at them and I'm like trying to decipher what I actually meant because some weird stuff runs through my head when I'm watching them. So that, a lot of them are like um, sort of half thoughts and random observations. Yeah. I- Again, not that exciting. I usually try not write anything during the film and just basically brain dump everything into like notepad on my phone once we've watched something and then try and make sense of it later. But occasionally, especially in the house, it's it's quite easy to get up and go and pick up another drink or go to the toilet. So sometimes grab the old phone and just add some stuff then. But I, I, I don't know how you found it before, Mason, but I tend to find if I have my phone too close to me, it's very tempting to just quickly yeah. check the football scores and then that becomes doing a bit more and then before you know it you've missed five minutes of the film and you have to rewind or you end up missing it. Or I'll get Sinead who's searching for an actor on IMDb and then he's reeling off the last five films he was in or whether or not he's dead. My partner is also obsessed with doing this as well which makes it great watching stuff on Amazon Prime because all you need to do is like press the wee button and then it tells you everybody who's in the scene. Yeah. Who's that? Who's that? (laughs) Sit and try and figure it out and then realise that you can just press a button in the remote. (laughs) Exactly, uh, exactly. I was reading that, uh, I think it might be Mark Hermode or Robbie Collin, how they take notes when they're watching a film in a cinema is that they've got a pen with a light on it, and so they make little notes in their pad and pa- uh, their pen and paper with a little light pen. I was thinking, I, if I was sat behind him, I would be raging if a little wee light was going on <laughs> off every time something decent happened. Surely Commode's got a um, cinema as his man. He's not having any, anyone around him when he's like writing his cherished notes down. Uh, he's the one that formed the code of conduct for cinemas. I would have thought that would have been a breach, but maybe we'll need to write into entertainment and just get a second opinion on that. So, we're covering 2003 on this episode, as previously mentioned. Now, before we go into the big five films that were nominated for Best Picture, I was having a look at the other films nominated for other awards this year or what were released that year, and it's quite a stacked year in terms of well-known films both good and bad. Any particular ones that either of you want to tell the listeners about? 
Yeah, so I might stay with Thunderwater. I can't remember if you said you were going to mention this one or not, but I was going to mention Big Fish. Quite comfortably, my favourite Tim Burton film. It's just right up my street, like weird fantasy comedy drama. It's got good actors in it, like Ewan McGregor and Helena Bonacarta. Well, as you would expect with a Burton film. Um, and the world's tallest ever actor, Matthew McGrory, who was seven foot six I and mean, had the biggest, still holds the Guinness Book of Records for having the world's biggest toe. Oh, bloody! I didn't know what you were going to say then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just got like weird, gimpy stories throughout. Oh man, I, I, I don't know whether I, can you spoil a film at this point, but that bit at the end, man, that's how I envisage me going, plot me in the water, turn into a big fish. All my pals like that. See you later. It's been a good life. Uh, see you later. Yeah. Anyway. I also love Big Fish. I think it's a great film. Tim Burton's one of those directors that when everything comes together, I think it's so good. Like I love Edward Scissorhands as well. That's probably my favourite Tim Burton one. But some of his more recent ones feel like it's weird for weirdness sake and doesn't quite click. Yeah, I can't remember his most recent one, but it's rubbish. Me neither, to be honest, which probably tells its own story. Yeah. It was also nominated for Best Director this year, but didn't get a Best Picture nomination and even more surprisingly didn't get a Best Foreign Language Film nomination, which I always thinks a bit bizarre, but the way they vote for these awards is a uh, sometimes quite curious, is City of God, which is a Brazilian film about life in the favelas. Either of you seen that film before? I think it's superb. Yeah, it's a, almost like a classic foreign film. It probably was one of the first... Um, might have been one of the first like, foreign films that I actually watched like when you were sticking something on, because it, it got quite a bit of hype. Mm. Maybe not so much around 2003, but I, I watched it in the, the mid-noughties or something at some point, where everyone's like, oh, you need to check this film out, it's, it's class. Um, but yes, it's a great film. Yeah, excellent. And there's another film we're talking about sequels. Is it City of Men that's a sequel? Which is, I think, pretty good as well. Be a City of God. Pretty heartbreaking from my memory. I've never seen City of Men, but I'll need to add that to the list. Yeah. Decent. The, the only other one that I was going to mention before we get kicked off is it's not a recommendation, certainly not on my part. Maybe it is on one of yours. Maybe one person. Certainly not two, I don't think. Love Actually was out in 2003. So this is now the staple of British Christmas TV watching. It got quite a few BAFTA nominations, I believe, but ignored by the Oscars. One of the occasions where I would definitely be siding with the Oscars over the BAFTAs, because I bloody hate this film. Now, I was with Associated Friends this weekend, and we got around to talking about film, and we went around to find out what everyone's favourite film was, and one person's favourite film of all time was Love Actually. Um, now, obviously, I wasn't with my own friends, so I was holding my tongue, but, uh, yeah, I'm with you on this one. It's Not only is it a terrible film, but it's the classic Richard Curtis idea of a lot of um, sad, rich white people who you're supposed to feel sorry about. The sexual politics are absolutely shocking in this film. And, I mean, just because it's set at Christmas, it's supposed to be heartwarming. But, I mean, it's not for me. It's not for me, this. Every man in this film is a stalker. Basically, yeah. so you have the prime minister who stalks the secretary, which is a sack. Of, which imagine that absolutely outrageous. Should be sacked. <laughs> well, I mean, it's quite hard to get sacked as PM these days. Well, <laughs> You've also got the, that weird Andrew Lincoln bit. It's like creepily like tells his best mate's wife that he loves her. Just keep that to yourself, mate. That's not the kind of thing that you reveal. And that's before you even get into that weird romance that Colin Firth has with the much younger exotic Portuguese woman. It does have the Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson story, which does work pretty well. But that's like one story out of eight or whatever it's got in the film. I just can't yeah. understand how people like it so much. 
Yeah, the bland, the bland film film watcher's favourite film in it. Like, I don't mind Bill Nye in it. Yeah, he's okay. He's okay. He's in playing. It. He's playing it for laughs. I think he knows it's a shit film, and he's just playing it for laughs. The, the big question that this probe so is when you were going round the table. First question: Did anyone say their favourite film was JFK? And second question: <laughs> Did did you give a true answer for your favourite film, or did you do I, that thing that some people do where they have their real answer and the one that they tell people? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, no, absolutely, I did. In fact, well, they've all been to my house and they've got they've seen my singing in the rain poster in the house, so there's no denying what my favourite film is. I'm trying to think if there's any others. I think my jaw was on the floor after the Love Actually bit came out. I can't remember what the people's were. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> there's like a guy at the end of the table who's like. Uh, I don't know, Lord of the Thongs. Still, <laughs> still too confused, but love actually, you've not even noticed. <laughs> well, 2003, pretty big year for, for movies, as uh, we have discussed, but let's get into the, the meat of this episode of Revisiting the Oscars. And we are going to start with Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. So, what are you doing here? Uh, a couple of things. Taking a break from my wife, forgetting my son's birthday, and uh, getting paid $2 million to endorse a whiskey when I could be doing a play somewhere. Oh. But the good news is the whiskey works. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, my husband's a photographer, so he's here working, and uh, wasn't doing anything, so I came along, and we have some friends that live here. How long have you been married? Oh, thank you. Two years? 25 long ones. Mm. You're probably just uh, having a midlife crisis. Did you buy a Porsche yet? You know, I was thinking about buying a Porsche. You know, I spent about 20 minutes this afternoon writing an intro to explain the plot of this film, and that clip there basically does everything for you. And we're kicking off 2003 there with Lost in Translation, which... I feel has now become a bit of a cult classic. And it strikes me as the kind of film that people say they like because they think it makes them look intelligent. So before I reveal whether or not I'm one of those people, let's do a bit of setup. So as we heard there, the two main characters in this film are Bob and Charlotte, played by Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson in what is her breakout role. Bill, playing Bob, as we heard, has travelled to Tokyo. He's filming a commercial for some Japanese whiskey, but he's a bit lost, hence the title. Uh, Charlotte, similarly is there basically to accompany her husband. He's a photographer, he's there on work. We heard that in the clip. But what we didn't hear was that Bob and Charlotte then begin a relationship which throughout the film varies between being flirty, being platonic, and being paternal. But I would say crucially never sexual, as we begin to find that they begin to find a connection with each other in uh, their um, solitude and loneliness. We've talked on this podcast about all three of us uh, big fans of coming-of-age films. Now, I would say this film is not a coming-of-age film, but it does, for me, play on what we, or for, for certainly I, like about those films. So the underlying th- theme here is that you've got two lost souls who are at a crossroads in life, albeit 30 years apart, and they're realising that they're unhappy and they've got a sense of longing for something different in their life. There's a sense of melancholy throughout the film that slowly lifts as Bob and Charlotte both of whom are stuck in a rut, start to find a little bit of joy in life. Now, as in a coming-of-age film, you've often got that single air-punch moment where the protagonist overcomes something or makes a life-changing realisation or decision. 
And whereas this film doesn't have that, it does still achieve that, you know, air punch moment in terms of how it does its subtlety, with subtlety and with a dose of reality. Unlike in a coming of age film, people who are depressed, they don't just snap out of it. It does happen slowly. And for me, that's what this film gives you. It gives you a sense of hope that if your life isn't panning out the way you expected it to, there's always going to be something a little down the line that could change it in an instant. So there's a lot to like in this film. Uh, I thought the acting was perfect. Bill Murray in particular is perfectly cast as a fading film star, which to be honest, in 2003, that's what he kind of was. The direction in this from Sofia Coppola, who, let's be honest, did have a very good education in it, is masterful. Considering this is only her second film, she managed to play it superbly in terms of how she begins, for example, with aerial shots of, you know, how vast and ultimately grey Tokyo is. Uh, She's got lingering shots of Bob playing golf on his own or Charlotte eating sushi on her own. And then slowly as Bob Bob and Charlotte come together we get more shots of uh, what we think of when we imagine tokyo we get karaoke bars we get bustling streets we get the neon lights and you know it lights the, the viewer up just as much as it does bob and charlotte i wasn't completely sold on this film as it started i was uh, the film for example starts with like a close-up shot of scarlett johansson's ass which i'm not sure you'd get away with these days but i was thinking all right this is what this kind of film this what this is what this film is but more the more the film played out the more it sucked me in and um, so to go back to my first point, yes, I am one of those people who like this film and thinks it makes me look clever. So uh, it's a hit in my book. Uh, what about you, Luke Watson? Yeah, I was going to say, I wasn't sure what you were going to say about it, but I must also be one of these people that wants to look intelligent. Uh, Lost in Translation is a film that I love very much. It appeals to every single bit of my pretensions, even down to like that niche, cool indie soundtrack that it's got going on underneath all the story itself. You've captured quite a lot of it, but I think ultimately it's a film about romance and loneliness. And I just say, not not romance in a sexual sense, but romance in the way that people can build a connection with somebody. I actually think it's one of the best films about loneliness or how people will feel when you reach crossroads in your life. Now, obviously, Bill Murray's character in this, Bob, is uh, much older than Scarlett Johansson's character, Charlotte. Yet they're, they're both going through a kind of crisis in their their own heads for different reasons. And I think there's something beautiful about the way that they connect with one another and that they have conversations that you could probably only really have with other strangers, wouldn't be able to open up in that way to their partners or to their families or to their friends. The romance angle is handled so well, it would have been really easy. And perhaps if, dare I say, the, the director for the film was male, it may have strayed into that wish fulfillment element of it. Clearly Scarlett Johansson is... A beautiful woman and there is little bits of it that hint that there maybe is a bit of a sexual attraction there but both of them particularly Bob I think are too smart to go down that route they kind of value the connection that they've got except that it's going to be fleeting so they just think well let's enjoy the time where they are connected together I, I think this is a, a really good film I love the portrayal of Japan in it I know in some places it's been criticized but I think it is meant to be Tokyo from a western perspective I can have some experience of that. I have been to Japan before and certainly I think it captures that assault in the senses that you feel when you first enter that environment. It's completely different from most Western cities and I think it does a really good job of portraying that experience from that of an outsider coming in, coming to terms with that whilst coming to terms with the problems that you've got in your own relationship and finding someone else that's going through the same as you. 
I love this film. I think it's great. So fully on board with everything you said, Mason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I make that three. I'll be another like hipster that like it's just about wax lyrical on this for like a few minutes. I try to think of different things. You probably covered pretty much everything I was going to say. And I was thinking back to it when I first watched this, and it was probably one of the first. I know it's not a coming of age film like you said, Mason. And I agree with that, but it, it was one of those types of films that I first watched that made me really carve out something. I was like, Christ, I don't think I've ever really watched anything like this and had such a connection with a film before. And it's got like everything I like, man. Like lonely crabbit guy, lost souls, <laughs> you know, exciting, dreamy kind of place, quality tunes. It's not got a story or a plot really. It's just really good, like perfect chemistry. Uh, I, I was going to say a little bit more on the plot and that. I don't know, it's kind of about mood, doesn't it? Like, there's like a mood that you get from the film that you, when you're watching it, and I, I can't even really, I don't know, it's melancholy or, or something like that, but it's just a feeling when you watch it, and you even get it when you rewatch it. And I've seen it a handful of times now, it's just, I don't know, it's like a human movie, isn't it, without sounding too cheesy or corny. Mm. I was going to pick up on that point that you said, what about, uh, like, the conversations, because I was reading that the script wasn't written in a traditional sense, so it was like, Almost they had an idea of what a scene should be, and then they relied on like heavy improvisation of the dialogue. And I think that's why it's got like such a natural feeling between the two main characters. That and some of the interactions, like the commercial bits where he's doing the whiskey commercials, are definitely mostly improvised. I would say just from from watching it. Oh, I don't know what else to to say on that. It's probably you've probably covered most of it. I mean, the, the only other thing was just, uh, we mentioned it, the soundtrack is so good and you can get it on Spotify, but I mean, how can you not love a soundtrack that's got Jesus and the Mary Chain? And then even those brilliant karaoke scenes, which has got that Roxy music tune, it's just it's a, br- a brilliant film all round and just a joy to watch. The, the one thing that I was going to throw back to you, so I was thinking of other films which fall into the same bracket as this, a couple of suggestions from me. So I think Eternal Sunshine and A Spotless Mind is quite similar in terms of the, the sort of feeling that I get from it. And then Her, maybe quite more recently, there was a Spike Jones thing, which controversial or ironically, I don't know if that's the right thing to say, was supposedly had response to Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation film because they were in a relationship at the time and apparently that was about the relationship. So there was two, but I wonder if there was any others that, that you guys had thrown to the mix. I've got one, but you're not going to like it. All oh, right. <laughs> it's uh, La La Land. Oh, piss off. <laughs> the, reason, the reason, I'll explain my, my reasoning. Both films have got male and female who are stuck in a rut, who are doing something they don't want to be doing, who find each other, who they help each other to find uh, happiness within each other. But then ultimately, at the end, they depart, they leave each other's lives because they've got what they needed from each other and they understand, they have a connection, they have a final last glance or a last scene together where they th- in La La Land there's a little nod, in Lost in Translation there's the whisper and they go off um, back to their own lives uh, having got what they needed from each other. So look, La La Land, that's what it reminded me of. You, you know you get that meme of the, the guy sweating and there's two buttons to face. <laughs> I would love to see what your reaction would be, Mason. If button one was rich white people problems and button two was but it's a musical. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that totally changes yeah, your view on stuff. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw one in the mix that I saw 
recently, actually, and it made me think of this a little bit, partly because it's also about a guy that's kind of stuck in a hotel. It's a film called The Consequences of Love, which is an Italian film from the director Paolo Sorrentino. You might have seen some of his stuff, did like The Great Beauty, it's probably his most well-known one. It's a film about a middle-aged guy who's stuck in a hotel for reasons that are not immediately clear and coming to terms with his life and how he's led it and how he can move forward if he even wants to. And I think he's a very similar character to Bob Harris in this, although granted Bob Harris is a movie star and has the money to do something different. So I'd recommend that. Good one. Uh, well, cool. Maybe maybe throw out to the listeners. Next next uh, episode, get get your ideas in. Tweet us, Instagram. We even got Facebook, I think. I don't know, but yeah, <laughs> tweet us. That's the best way. We, we do have a Facebook, but I've, I've not promoted it. So this kid, right, so. there's about yeah, four people. <laughs> just tweet us with your suggestions of films like Lost in Translation, and we'll cover them on the in the post okay. bag in the next episode. And if you agree with me about La La Land, please uh, at me in as well. <laughs> That means I, I can actually see the arrogant ambassador. He's like that. What he was talking about the meme with the two buttons. I'm getting the meme with that. Like you know, the kid that's like got the vein in his head. <laughs> just... Yeah. So, so lost in translation had four Oscar nominations. Uh, so one of the the lower amounts of the films this year. Um, but it was the big ones: best picture, best director, Bill Murray for best actor, and best original screenplay, which it did win. So only one win. Uh, so a good start to this episode then. Let's see if that continues with Clint Eastwood's Mystic River. I loved her. Most. When we were sitting in that kitchen at night, it's like we were the last two people on earth, you know, forgotten. Unwanted. And it really started pissing me off day because I can't cry for her. my own little daughter and I can't even cry for her. Jimmy. You're crying now. So for the third time on this podcast, and not the last should I add, we're discussing a Clint Eastwood movie. On this occasion, Mystic River, the haunting and hypnotic tale centering on a murder investigation in Boston. Now, the movie centres on three childhood friends who have all drifted apart in adulthood, in large part as a result of an incident in their childhood that caused damage to them all in different ways, which we see in flashback at the opening of the film. Now, the characters are Jimmy Markham, who's played by Sean Penn. He's essentially a local gangster slash hard man, runs a local store. You then have Dave Boyle, played by Tim Robbins, the individual most affected by the incident in their childhood, keeps himself to himself these days. And Sean Devine, who's played by Kevin Bacon and is now a detective with the Boston PD. And they all find themselves drawn back into each other's orbit when Jimmy's daughter is found murdered, with Sean, the investigating officer on the case, and Dave being earmarked as a potential suspect on account of some suspicious behaviour on the night that she tragically died. This is all the ingredients of a mystery movie in terms of how it's set up, a whodunit. Whilst it's part of it, it's not really a mystery as such. It's more of a framework that allows Clint Eastwood and his actors to explore the depths of their characters and how this latest tragedy links back to the childhood and brings old memories to the surface. 
And that incident in their childhood, as mentioned, it casts such a large shadow over the lives of Jimmy, Dave and Sean. And it becomes clear that whilst Dave was affected most by what happened, he was also affected by the distance that grew between him and his two friends, who perhaps didn't fully understand or comprehend what had happened to him. The symbolism is most apparent by a scene at the very beginning where the boys had left their names on the pavement in concrete. And what you see is that Dave was taken before he'd been able to write his full name down. And that almost acts as a metaphor or a reminder of how his childhood was never fulfilled and his life was never fulfilled on account of that horrible incident. The the overarching thing I'd say it does is it builds up a sense of inevitable tragedy that hangs over every scene. And I find myself really drawn into the story and these characters. It's one of those films where you really want there to be a happy ending, but you know that that's not going to happen. And everything is building towards a a set conclusion that it can't get away from. I must say, I think this is a, a fine example of a film that is high quality in almost every level. This is a bit of an odd year in that out of the 20 acting nominations, only four of them were from Best Picture nominated films. We talked about Bill Murray in the last film. Three of the other nominations came from this film, so the other three films we're going to discuss didn't have any acting nominations. And two of them were winners for Sean Penn and for Tim Robbins. Marcia Gay Harden was also nominated for playing Dave's wife, Celeste. Clint Eastwood's strength as the director is ultimately how he can draw great performances from his cast. Um, Over the years, he's directed 14 Oscar-nominated acting performances, four of them winning, two for this film, and he certainly gets the good performances here. Another strength of... Eastwood as a director, which I think plays into how successful Mystic River is, in my opinion, is that he is a storyteller, more than a visual or cinematic stylist. He's not a Wes Anderson. His style is in the story and in his actors, and it's rarely more apparent than here. Nothing for show, everything for effect is the Clint Eastwood motto, and it's worked well over the years. Give him a good script and a good cast and he'll make it work. And this was the start of an incredible run of films, which would include his win for Million Dollar Baby. He also had a couple of other big films in the 2000s that were nominated. So, I mean, I've pretty much laid my stall out here. I think Mystic River is one of his best films. I think it's incredibly well acted. It's a powerful story. I maybe have a slight critique over the ending. It's a little bit convenient how it all comes together. But I'd be clutching at straws because I think this is one of Eastwood's best movies. Now, do you share my views, Scott Bingham? Right, I've got some bones to pick with this film. And I'm sorry to say, Clint, I know you're a great listener of this pod, good friend, but I'm I'm going to have to criticise this. So I don't necessarily disagree with a lot of what you said. That performances are really good and it it really stand out and probably hold a lot of it together. And the direction is good, but what I do have an issue with is the writing. So I'd say this is two-thirds an excellent film and one third, i.e. the utterly ridiculous last chapter, is, is terrible and really unsatisfying. You're going to have to play the little spoiler klaxon because I'm about to have a rant about it and I can't have a rant without uh, just ruining the ending. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, plot-wise, let's get this out of the way. There's... Two hugely coincidental killings which occur in the same night that just happen to involve Dave and it's connected to his childhood friend. Okay, maybe. It's a film, that kind of shit happens. But then, like, three quarters of the way through the film, you've you've learnt several things about what's happened. There's been several reveals and events that have led you to have several suspicions. You build up a suspicion of, you know, who done it, who, who was it that, that, that done it. But then it, it fucking turns out that it's a character that 
has spent about two, he's been in about two scenes in the film. He doesn't do anything. He never says anything suspicious. He's not got a motive. And what you're supposed to believe that he randomly decides when he's out to, to kill another person on a whim is a fucking ridiculous setup in terms of writing and in terms of plot. Not only that, we've got a childhood pal who randomly commits a more sort of justifiable murder in the same night. But rather than reveal the facts of that murder, when he's staring death in the face, he just stays stum and dies anyway. Are you having a fucking laugh? Like, why don't you be like, oh yeah, I killed this like uh, rapist, uh, and the guy's body's lie over here, I'll prove it to you, I'll just take him to the body. Like, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. Th- there's other bits of it, so that I- I've got that, crushes it for me. Um, there's other bits that I really didn't like. I mean, what the fuck is that Lady Macbeth scene thing at the end where you've got Sean Penn's wife convincing him to ditch his quiet life which is you've learnt through the full film that he's got away from the gangster life this has sort of reinvigorated him to sort out the or revenge the, the death of his, his daughter but then she convinces him to be an arch criminal again what the fuck are Kevin Bacon's wife's calls about like that's never explained you, you know she's just like phoning him not saying anything and then at the end she just like turns up like, I, I could just have done without that I don't know, I just feel it's like a bit of a mess at the end of it and it's far too Hollywood and coincidental for it to really sit as like an excellent film for me. So I think out of... I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bad film, I just can't... I think it's, like I said, it's, it's two-thirds of a good film, one-third of a pretty terrible film compared to the, the other films in this year. But interested to know where you sit, Mason. Uh, well, I think it's three-thirds of a good film. I'm... Fully on board with Watson's opinion here. I thought, excellent piece of film noir. You've already mentioned the acting performances, Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, but particularly Marsha Gay Harden, superb in this. Just how she wrangles with the guilt of what ultimately happens at the end and has the the weight on her shoulders from that. But also how she dithers between should she should she explain her suspicions about her husband or not. I thought every scene that she was in, she completely uh, took over. I thought she was excellent. Looking at the other four films nominated this year, I think that this is the only one that's got a proper a meaty story. It's got more thrills than Master and Commando. It's got more action than Seabiscuit. I thought it had more pathos than Lost in Translation. And it's certainly got a better script than Lord of the Rings. So yeah, so much to like about this film. No surprise it led to a career renaissance for Clint Eastwood. He's done a lot of shite before this for the last since Unforgiven that we, that we had on the podcast. Between then and this film, nothing particularly great and then after this of course we get million dollar baby gran torino which are another two highlights of his career unfortunately we are now back into a lot of shite from clint but yeah start of a little golden 10-year period for him and no surprise i was going to pick on a couple of scenes and i'm going to pick you apart on one of them bingham the super the opening flashback sequence which starts the film where you see the three main characters as children it sells you everything about the atmosphere and the tone of this film you instantly from that first five minutes know Okay, I, I know what um, this film's all about straight away, and I know that you've got three kind of, uh, broken characters as adults. Then bang, you see the three kids straight away as forty-somethings, and you instantly, from each scene, it goes through each one of them. You see how their lives have panned out since the flashback incident. I thought it's a masterclass in scene setting and, and show not tell. First twenty minutes, bang, you're involved in and invested in all three of their lives. I would say, in terms of the spoiler, in terms of who the killer is. Now, this is like the second or third time I've seen this film, so I couldn't quite remember when I watched it for the first time whether or not I went along with the fact that it's Tim Robbins who did it. And then, shock, horror, twist at the end. Oh, no, it isn't. As soon as I saw the mute kid, and that's how they refer to him in the film, 
I was thinking, oh shit, yeah, it is him. And you say that he's got no motive. He kind of does have a motive, if you ask me, because the only person in the life that understands him is his bigger brother, who's learned sign language, who looks after him. And his bigger brother, he's about, he's learned, is about to fuck him off and go to Las Vegas with this girl, who he ends up killing. So that's a motive, if you ask me. So I did, I did, I was on board with the killing. I do agree with you that why didn't Tim Robbins just say that he'd killed a rapist rather than had some sort of random mugging incident? But then, of course, you need that for the ending to work. Uh, you need there to be doubt in everybody's mind. You need his storyline to have changed so that you as a viewer start to doubt him. So I can see why they went with it. And then the new one, the ending, which intercuts between two separate showdowns, Sean Penn and Tim Robbins' showdown, and then who we now find out is the actual killer and his brother. I thought that was so good how they kept cutting between them just as you get to a stage where you think one of them is going to lead to something. It cuts to the next one and then suddenly the tension rises again. I was, you know, I was feeling sick watching it with a bit of tension and anticipation. So yeah, I love this film. I thought it's career highlight for Clint. Funnily enough, you say that, Mason. So going back to Bingham's point about the two bits at the end in terms of the uh, the ultimate, the main killing and then the bit with mm. Tim Robinson, Sean Penn's character... I'd actually almost flip that around. I think the main killing is very convenient, but it needs to be convenient for the plot. It's either going to be one of the main characters and there needs to be a good reason for that, or it needs to be someone that comes out of left field. I, I, I'm less sure on that bit, but I'm not sure how else you would have done it. If you'd made Dave the killer, that I think undermined a lot of what the film's about. The, the film had me by then, that it was more about the journey, and I think it, it leads to the ultimately powerful conclusion. Sean Penn's an actor that gets a bit of criticism but when he's on his game he's really on his game and I think he does some terrific stuff in, in this film in particular Yeah, I think with Sean Penn you know he's acting, he's like this is me doing acting whereas I, if I was voting I, you know, I think this is a great film but I think Bill Murray's performance in Lost in Translation is much better in terms of it's just more subtle and more natural and you know you can feel as though that's actually how that character would be whereas in this, as good as Sean Penn is I did feel in a lot of his scenes he's doing acting Tim Robbins, Marshall K. Harden, both great. Sean Penn. Mm. I, I was going to say, it's worth watching this film just for that howl that Sean Penn manages to find out, or manages to let out his mouth, man, when he finds out it's his daughter. Yeah, you, you know, that acting. that did remind me of uh, a film from around this time that you shared a clip off on a much earlier episode, The Villain from The Punisher. It's <laughs> 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 like, what yeah. <laughs> the other the other thing uh, that made me laugh about this Sean Penn's acting he is acting that much that you know he's acting that he manages to turn into the fucking Hulk see that bit that's about he finds out that his uh, daughter's body's like whatever it is there's 15 <laughs> police officers around him <laughs> restraining him man how strong is he <laughs> like it's actually ridiculous Okay, well, well, this film had six Oscar nominations, Best Picture, Best Director, and then we mentioned that Sean Penn and Tim Robbins won for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor. Marcia Gaharden had a Supporting Actress nomination and it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, but only won the two of them. Okay, film number three then, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. I hate it when you talk at the surface in this way. It makes me so very low. Do you think I want to flog Nagel? A man who stood beside me on the gunnel and hacked the ropes and sent his mate to his death, under orders. Under my orders. Do you not see it? The only things that keep this little wooden world together are hard work, discipline... Jack, the man failed to salute. For God's sake, Stephen, there's hierarchies even in nature, as you've often said yourself. There is no disdain in nature. There is no humiliation. Men must be governed. 
Often not wisely, I'll grant you, but they must be governed nonetheless. That's the excuse of every tyrant in history, from Nero to Bonaparte. And I, for one, am opposed to authority. Your opposition is not my concern. Misery and oppression. You've come to the wrong shop for anarchy, brother. So, master and commander, far side of the world. Sounds about shit, doesn't it? Anyway, hold that thought. So this is Peter Weir's epic Napoleonic war drama, and it's, of course, an adaptation of Patrick O'Brien's books, and boy, that, that guy loved his books, man. He wrote 20 in the Master and Commander series. And oddly enough, this film isn't really based on one book. It's kind of just picks and borrows parts from a few, a several of the books anyway. The film itself is set in the early 1800s. You're on a British ship floating about the far Atlantic during Napoleonic Wars. And it's as much as a, a sort of tale about a bold and brash captain that we heard in that clip who sort of pushes the ship and its crew to its limits to hunt down a French war vessel as it is a story about two characters. And you've got the aforementioned great strategic captain, Captain Aubrey, played by Russell Crowe, and the ship's intellectual surgeon and uh, ultimately the captain's friend Stephen Maturin played by Paul Bettany funnily enough linking up with Crow just after the success of The Beautiful Mind which must have been like the year before or, or two years before this one um, and then you know you've got what you would expect from this you've got some swashbuckling battles upon encounters between the two battling ships some horrendous stormy weather a nice little escudgeon to the Gal- Galapagos Islands um, felt like Mr Watty on his recent holiday um, as well as um, many scenes between the two characters that I said the story focuses on as you sort of get transported into life on the ship. So I said earlier on, this has got a shit title, right? You you bring it up on Amazon or whatever to stream it, you see a picture of Russell Crowe holding a sword on the cover. You're like, it's two hours, 20 minutes long. You remember, you're like, I've not really heard of this. And it's like box office flop. So you think it's just going to be a, like, a throwaway action movie. But preconceptions can be quite dangerous. And I actually thought this was really, really good. To the extent, in fact, I'd go as far as saying I thought this was a brilliant film. It's really expertly shot. There's really good sound effects. I mean, I've got surround sounds in my house. And Christ, I felt like I was on the ship getting like slapped with these big cannonballs going across the, the water. I felt like I, I felt like I was like living on that wee cramped, dangerous ship with horrible conditions. The battles are really well done. And I think you kind of get that epic feeling that you get in some of the best battles on in, in certain films. So, like, I don't know, the, the, the best of all time, Saving Private Ryan, uh, the D-Day landings. It's not as good as that, but the battles are, you know, on that sort of scale and quite, quite near that in terms of quality. I also think maybe the reason I was, like, more infused by it, because normally I'm not really fussed for these types of films, but it's quite rare for a film to be set during Napoleonic Wars all on a ship. I, I can't even think of another one. They certainly aren't ten a penny. So maybe from a purely historical perspective, I find it quite intriguing and quite fresh. But then I would say the main thing which probably sets us apart from other like action films that I really can't be arsed with is that the chemistry between Crow and Bettany is really good. And I really like enjoyed like the camaraderie and the difference between their two respective characters. They both put in really good performances, but they just have that sort of, you know, the great ballsy war captain who you know wants to keep up his reputation and then you've got the more reflective intellectual surgeon who you know wants to go and look at some crazy birds and that on the Galapagos Islands so yeah I guess I'd say think twice before you stick on another by the numbers action blockbuster 
or a superhero film or whatever crap Netflix is putting out and give this one a shot because I think you'll find it's a far better film here than what you were expecting. But I will go, I'll go with Watty because I'm, I'm hoping, I think Mason might, <laughs> might, might be on the opposing fence here. So I'll go with Watty. I, I think that's more of a safe bet. Well, I, I think we, I think we might have caught a wee from Mason when you were facing <laughs> that there. Uh, unsurprisingly, yeah, I do think this is an excellent film as well. It's a shame in a way that it didn't lead to the sequels that it was intended to lead to. Is it? <laughs> well, I mean, so so this is, for me, this is what blockbuster filmmaking should be about and what it used to be about, where you would craft uh, an epic drama with a big budget, uh, lots of action, but there would be intelligent storytelling, real deep themes underneath. And uh, I'm not saying that you don't get that in some of the Marvel films or that, but it's they're very by the numbers. Maybe this would have became by the numbers. Sequels for all films tend to end up failing. I think it's also an interesting comparison that you had, as we mentioned earlier, Pirates of the Caribbean out this year. That has led to about six sequels. And whilst the first Pirates of the Caribbean, as we mentioned, is good fun, I think slightly anticipating your criticism, Mason, I think one of the key reasons that this didn't do as well is something like Pirates. And yet the same team, one of the reasons why I do really like it is that it's quite period authentic storytelling and its willingness to be a bit more detailed and dense than your average blockbuster. That really appeals to me. Now, that is maybe a bit of a barrier to the popcorn crowd, of which I know you're not Mason, to be clear, before uh, before you take that one to heart. Um, I think you, you touched on probably the main thing that I like about this film is the battles between Paul Bettany's character and Russell Crowe. Paul Bettany's not an actor that I would say that I'm particularly excited about seeing in the film, but I think he's excellent here. This is as good as he's, he is in anything. And it, it does play that man of science, man of nature between the two of them. I, you've kind of drawn that comparison already. There's a couple of really good scenes where it starts to bring that juxtaposition to the fore. So you've got the scene when Paul Bettany's character is on the Galapagos. He's collecting his samples, he's doing some research, and then he spots the enemy ship over the horizon, and then he's drawn back with a jolt into the realities of life on a ship and the life in the times of the Napoleonic Wars. And you have this all rare beauty of the Galapagos, which is a place that I would highly recommend anyone visiting if you get the chance to do, contrasted with the brutality of man and how we're fighting these ship battles in the other side of the world. I mean, Napoleon was French, this is a British ship. What are they doing on the other side of South America? There's also some elements of it, particularly when they land in the Galapagos. And an interesting bit of trivia, of which I've got a couple, is that this is the only feature film that's been given permission to shoot on the Galapagos. Um, It's usually just documentaries. Lots of David Attenborough walking around with big turtles. When they land there, I think this does quite a good job of capturing how exciting it must have felt being at that period, at the dawn of scientific enlightenment discovering new species I've got quite a big kick out of that now we're, we're going to come on to you Mason in a wee bit but I do have to ask I'm expecting you clearly didn't like this film but you must have liked one element you must have liked the pun about the lesser of two weevils I, I did like that although I don't know what a weevil I, 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 I didn't know what a weevil was I never heard of a weevil have you googled it you must know what a weevil is now I, I know, I know what it's like it is a wee now, beetle thing it would have been lost on me at the time I would say to get the most out of this film, you need to have an unhealthy interest in 19th century naval warfare tactics. Because, you know, like, for example, in Line of Duty, the TV show, where they'll use police lingo and they'll use police jargon, and you like that as if you Mom. because... 
It's because it's how the police actually speak and you feel engaged. Well, you know, imagine that, but boring. Uh, that's what this <laughs> film is. I, I, maybe it's just that I'm not asked about boats, but as soon as they started talking about, and I can't even think of the bloody naval jargon that they use, but it's a lot of shite. But I did make a list of people who I can guarantee you, if I asked them, they would like this film. So here's who I think will like this film. People who buy those magazines where you've got a build, for example, St. Paul's Cathedral, and the first one costs 99p, <laughs> and then you've got to buy the next 100 for about 13 quid. Those people. Is that not what some Bingham shelf behind them there? <laughs> uh, people who write to the council when they hear there's a new build estate going up and it blocks the view from their kitchen. Those people. The people who sit at the bar and talk to the barmaid all night about spitfires and then don't give them a tip at the end. <laughs> Those people like this film. It's honestly, it's, it's such a bore, this film, for me. Firstly, Russell Crowe mumbles all the way through it. Paul Bettany's botanist, I found, took away from what action I was engaged with. I thought the scenes of the Galapagos are too on the nose. You get like a little shot of every single animal that there is on the Galapagos. It doesn't surprise me that they've never allowed anybody else to film on the Galapagos because they told us to <laughs> watch this one time and thought, absolutely no chance. It's, I don't know. And look, I'm sure that this, and the guy in the pub would tell me that this is historically accurate, but this film's got children, like nine or ten-year-old kids, who've got like senior positions on the ship. I mean, maybe it is historically accurate. That genuinely is historically accurate. I did find that baffling too and had to do a research on it, but apparently it is. Nine-year-olds bossing around like grown military men. Like having conversations with each other, nine-year-old chats with another nine-year-old about, you know, uh, whether they're going to get a promotion. (laughs) One kid gets his arm chopped off and then is like, oh, sorry about that. He gives him a book. I was thinking he can't even hold the book and then turn the page. (laughs) He's got one hand. (laughs) He, t- he takes that surprisingly well, doesn't he? He's like, oh, cracks on, what the fucking hell? So yeah, it meant to be a franchise. It didn't make another one. No surprise. Dog shit. So, so you wouldn't be like one of those guys after watching this film who buys like a little telescope that they have on ships and then doesn't just open that telescope to look through it, like stands really, really dramatically and like flicks it out and looks into no. the distance. I won't be that guy. I'm genuinely curious, Mason, what pubs you're going to where you're, you're hearing old men at the bar talking about Spitfires because that's something I've never experienced in my life. Yeah, you know, there's, a, there's a few down in, in... If you go to a sort of little village in England, you'll find many of those kind of pubs. <laughs> um, the only other bad trivia I had in this that I quite liked was um, Russell Crowe actually learnt violin and he said it was the hardest thing he's ever done for a film. So there you go. He certainly doesn't bother learning accents. He'll spend more time on his accents than his violin. <laughs> <laughs> there is that famous interview when he, he did Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, which I've not actually seen, and it's meant to be rubbish. But apparently his accent's mm. terrible in that. And some someone interviewing him asked him about it, and he goes off on one. <laughs> but he is a bit of an angry man, Russell Crowe. But he's on form here, in my opinion. Now you must have. There's quite a lot of recognisable faces in this, which means you know what's coming. And usually it's you two guys that are spotting this stuff. So I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of credit for this one. Because we do have a quarry reference. Now, I'll just start with who the character is in Corey because I'm not sure the name Mr. Holler the Boatswain will mean too much to either of you. But, um, Boatswain. 
Paul Swine. <laughs> well, I mean, that that is what the character's name is, but the, the actor's name is Ian Mercer. And in the late 90s, which was my peak Quarry watching period, so I was quite impressed to spot this. He played Gary Mallet in Quarry for five years in the late 90s. He was married Gary, to Judy. Yeah. He was involved in that ridiculous baby snatching plot, from what I remember. Then I think she died and he disappeared. So, yeah, did you guys spot that? Yeah, I actually I died. didn't spot that. No, I didn't. I'm shocked because I don't remember Gary and I don't think I remember seeing him. Maybe I was. this is one of the people <laughs> where I was thinking, but do you see Boatswain? I uh, was going to throw in another one. This is a really obvious one that you must have picked up. The I don't really know what role he had on the boat and he probably got to probably Boatswain. Uh, but he was kind of like a chef for the main captains and it was none other than David Thrifall who is from Shameless. Frank Gallagher. So he is Frank Gallagher. I didn't notice it. I recognised the actor at the time, but I didn't put two and two together until checking it afterwards. I bet he's been in Corrie as well. He may may well have been, yeah. I must also say this. I'm sure this will be a trivia question in 100 years' time. How the fuck did Billy Boyd end up in two Best Picture nominated films in the one year? (laughs) That is quite something, because I'm pretty sure he's not been in any award-nominated films since this year. (laughs) No going on to have a, a great career, that lad. Bless him. Bless him. Bless his wee hobbit socks. Now, we're going to talk about this daft wee horse. And that, as Mason put it when introducing this year. So we're going to talk about wee Seabiscuit. The first time he saw Seabiscuit, the colt was walking through the fog at five in the morning. Smith would say later that the horse looked right through him. As if to say, what the hell are you looking at? Who do you think you are? He was a small horse, barely 15 hands. He was hurting too. There was a limp in his walk, a wheezing when he breathed. Smith didn't pay attention to that. He was looking the horse in the eye. Remember that voiceover because I'm about to try and recreate it shortly. So, you know, when you go to a museum and there might be a room that's showing like a black and white documentary and it talks about the Industrial Revolution or like the American Civil War. And then you sit down for a bit and you watch it and after five minutes you think, yeah, well, and then you, you, you wander off somewhere else. Well, Seabiscuit is that, but like dragged out over two and a half hours. And I wrote this down with before we knew that that was going to be the clip, but that voiceover that we just heard starts off the film and punctuates it throughout. It's a voiceover that I'm sure you would agree, just from that clip, is incredibly patronising. It's nauseating. And unfortunately, I do feel obliged to try and recreate it to explain the plot. So here we go. Once there was a man who liked cars. His name was Mr. Howard, and he liked them so much that one of them fell off a cliff and killed his son. He became so sad that his wife left him. But then a woman 25 years younger than him liked him, so he married her. He decided to turn his back on cars... And, because he was very rich, take up racehorse ownership instead. Meanwhile, a young boy, whose family were poor, sold him to a fair. And he became very good at riding horses. Later, that boy grew up to become Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> the man who used to like cars, but now likes horses. And the jockey Spider-Man became a team. But they needed a horse. That horse was Seabiscuit. Thank you. 
So anyway, listen, anybody who's listening... I, I, I was looking forward to the rest of that story. <laughs> in that if, if, if you're a casting agent for a voiceover and there's an advert you want me to work on, then I'm, I'm open to offers. Yeah, I actually lost myself during that. I thought I was sitting in a museum. You know, you know, I said that Master and Commander was shite because I'm not asked about boats. Well, look, I'm also not asked about horses. So that's not to say that you can't watch films about something that you're not particularly interested in or isn't your usual thing and not like them. You absolutely can. But Seabiscuit is so saccharine and cutesy that I felt there should be like, it should have been an animated film with a Disney logo at the start. And by the way, you find out at the end that it is scored by Randy Newman. So dare I say that making the story Disney-fied is fully intentional. Now, I've half mentioned the actors in this, but we have Jeff Bridges, Oscar winner, of course, who is playing uh, Mr. Howard, Seabiscuit's owner. We have Chris Cooper, another Oscar winner, who is playing Seabiscuit's trainer. And we have Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man. Not an Oscar winner. No surprise. Uh, so all, all three have been directed to, it feels to me, to try and get a tear out of the audience with every scene. There's no nuance. There's no depth to the characters. I mean, there's a scene, as I alluded to, Mr. Howard, Jeff Bridges, his, his son dies in a horrific accident. But they, they play that off as sort of, sort of montage, which they, they use in like 30 seconds. And then five minutes later on in the film, he's getting married again. It's just... Uh, every, every like tragedy in the film or everything we think, okay, this is an interesting bit. They just brush over. Uh, we, we at one point see Red, who is the name of the jockey played by Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man. And uh, at one point you see a bottle of whiskey on the floor by him. So I was thinking, okay, that's interesting. Googled it later. Red, the jockey, was a raging alcoholic. I'm thinking, well, that's, that's an interesting character detail. Let's see more of how he battled his alcoholism, how he, you know, rose to glory riding the sauce. It loses all the interest. And that's clearly because they must have been told, make this film a PG, make this film uh, interesting to children, which means that you just get a lot of nonsense in it. Now, that voiceover that we heard, not my one, was alluding to Chris Cooper's trainer, how he works out that Seabiscuit is going to be a good racehorse because he looks him in the eye. I mean, come on. Similarly, you get a scene where Red, the jockey's injured, He's hurt his leg, he's sat on his porch, and he has some sort of mental premonition that little Seabiscuit's also going to get his leg hurt. What, are you supposed to believe that Seabiscuit and the jockey are, like, telepathically connected? It's just stupid. And it's frustrating because this is a story based on truth. There's so much that you could uh, put in this film to make it interesting about character detail, about, you know, about the social economics of the time. It was the 1920s, and they keep alluding to it in the voiceover about how people are struggling, and they saw Seabiscuit as some sort of working man's horse. Well, I want to see more about that. I don't care if the horse wins another race. So, another film which I felt could have been good. Or could it have been good? I don't know. As a rule, I think that films about real animals are shite. I was trying to think about a good one before this, and I couldn't. So, look, maybe you... Two will disagree, but my final word on Seabiscuit is going to be that it was horseshit. <laughs> Scott Bingham, surely yeah. you're on my side here. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's absolutely garbage, this film. It's got all those like hallmarks of like an old family Sunday, like Sunday oh. afternoon pish, basically. That, that, like you said, the cheesy narration, the string music is terrible throughout it. It's so boring. Uh, like yeah. you, not really fussed about horses. But yeah, yeah, whatever. But I mean, how long? I lost count how long this film is. Like two and a half hours almost or something like that. Which is ridiculous for a film which is pitched at a family or a child or I guess a Disney type audience. I suppose Jeff Bridges was quite good, but his character's good. Like you, you would go 
you know, you'd go for a pint. You'd probably buy you a pint, wouldn't take any money off you. You'd hear some lovely stories. You'd feel quite good about yourself. Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire. What's up with his weird lip? This does my head in. <laughs> I, I, I always get confused when I see Tobey Maguire because I just, like, think... He's always got this, like, weird, like, sort of frightened expression on his face that if you, like, booed at him, round, like somebody come out around a corner that you'd, like, keel over. <laughs> Uh, surprise, surprise, I'm going to have a bash at him. He clearly didn't learn to ride a horse during this, so he couldn't even be arsed. Unlike Russell Crowe, who's spending hours trying to learn to play the violin, he couldn't be bothered trying to learn to ride a horse. So all the scenes with him supposedly riding Seabiscuit are just a stunt actor. Or, or mm. just like that bald guy that trains him that looks horses in the eye and somehow knows how good they are. Oh, and, I, and I'm going to really have a moan that the ending I could do without that. You guys know I hate this melodramatic rubbish where they set up an ending at the end. Everything works out great. There's you're meant to have tears <laughs> in your eyes. Oh, please! Like I, I wanted that ending, and this is just massive evil self. I'm like, I hope that horse like breaks down during this race. <laughs> Like I hope the I hope the, the other guy bashes into him and the jockey falls off and he's dead. Like, just, yeah. So, what if you can't be much more positive than that, truly? I'm finding it hard to disagree with most of what you said, but I did think this was a perfectly fine movie overall. No, it's it's very Disneyfied. It's saccharine, but it's I thought it was quite enjoyable. Like in the moment, I wouldn't watch it again. But I would say, whilst it's nothing original or innovative, it's a good old-fashioned movie, nice underdog story, it's quite well shot, decent acting. Yeah, okay, it's a bit sentimental, but I, I did enjoy it. I, I do like a good sports movie, to be fair. It's got that classic structure of you have the setback before the final race, ultimate triumph, the challenges and getting the position to win. I wasn't expecting much from this, to be fair. I do think it's definitely the odd one out out of the five films nominated this year that this one clearly feels like one of those films that if, if I watched this in an average year where I watched 100 plus movies I'd probably have enjoyed it but it would be pretty forgettable it's a bit bizarre that it's been nominated for Best Picture considering some yeah. of the other films that were out this year but I don't think it's a bad movie as such there's a couple of elements that do not really work for it I think you mentioned Mason that it's obviously set at the time of the Great Depression it's straining through the narrative to make parallels between the depression and the fact that these people were poor and this horse gave them hope and all this stuff and I think that underlying thesis is true that like an underdog doing well can give people hope but certainly the way that the film tells the story that I don't think rings true as well as it could have done I was actually surprised at how well done the racing sequences were granted not the bits where it's Tobey Maguire talking to the other guy who was actually a jockey, not an actor, a jockey being an actor, and still looked quite good up against Tobey Maguire. Um, but those bits were weird because they were clearly shot on the soundstage. But actually the racing sequences, I was like, how have they managed to do that? Did they use some real race footage? I thought they were quite impressive. But you're right with the ending, though. Like The, the natural ending would have been when Biscuit actually died. Because I checked after, so he died when he was 14, which is fairly young for a horse. If you're going to tell virtually the full life of this horse, then finish it with when it dies. Last thing, last thing, they don't even tell you why Seabiscuit's called Seabiscuit, unless I missed that. It's just uh, a weird name for a horse, and I would be curious to know why they've called it that. Horse names are weird in general, though. But if you've got a film that's called Seabiscuit, at least tell us why he's called that. Yeah, well, it, was, it had seven Oscar nominations, didn't win any of them. But it was nominated for seven, which is quite a lot, so... Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, 
best cinematography, best editing, best art direction, best costume design, and best sound mixing. Best adapted screenplay. So that means that somebody wrote a fucking book about this. It is based on a book. the book. It is based on a book. What 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 does the book say like during the horse race? It's like oh he's last, he's now sixth. Oh he's he's won. That's like three lines. Okay, well we're we're at almost the end of the show, but it is of course Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King. My friends. You bow to no one. I think there's a good argument for all the qualities of the Lord of the Rings films as we've talked about over two recent episodes and we will about this one that the score is the best part of it hence why I've selected a clip for this one that is basically just score plus that cracking wee bit with the, the hobbits anyway as mentioned over the past few months we've all spent around 10 hours worth of time in Middle Earth more if like me you watch the extended editions and now we've finally arrived at the end of our first trilogy in Lord of the Rings, one of two that we're going to cover over the course of revisiting the Oscars. Now, this is Return of the King, the final episode of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it remains one of the biggest films of all time. And unlike its predecessors, it has the Oscars to prove it. It was nominated for 11 awards, and it remarkably won every single one of them, joining Ben-Hur and Bingham's favourite Titanic as the joint most successful Oscar winner of all time. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, I would be amazed if you haven't seen this film before, so I will keep the summary very brief. Frodo and Sam have just made it to Mordor with Gollum in tow, whilst the remainder of the core group are reunited again with the people of Rohan after defeating Saruman and Sauron's forces at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Yet this is of course the final film, so there remains great battles to come, centering mainly on the area of Gondor and the city of Minith Tirith. This is the culmination of the epic story that is Lord of the Rings, and it's bigger and denser than what came before, although not necessarily better, but more on that later. So like all three of the films in the trilogy, this is epic movie making on the grandest scale possible, and if it isn't quite my favourite of the three, it still delivers the action, drama and emotional payoffs that everyone's been waiting for. It has become a little bit popular to criticise Return of the King, and my usual caveat when talking about the Lord of the Rings films, I come from a place that these three films are all undoubtedly five out of five, don't dip below that. I would say the Dead Army are kind of silly, even for a fantasy movie, and quite annoying, as I always got stuck there in the video game. We spend a bit too much time on Denifor here, and there is about six endings in the four-hour-plus runtime, as per the extended edition. I think it'd also be fair to say, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this, that a lot of the awards that it wins on this evening were for the trilogy as a whole, as opposed to necessarily for this movie in its own right. However, as I mentioned, I love this film, and I love Lord of the Rings. I've seen them all countless times, and could quote many parts of it, and this one more than most sends the shivers down the back of my spine, and hits the emotional beats this story is working towards. My personal preference, as I'm sure we'll come on to, I like the Fellowship of the Ring best. I think there's something really appealing about that before the story becomes more sprawling and sends the characters apart. 
It is the nature of fantasy epics, particularly those with an adventure narrative. But there's something about the intimacy and all of being introduced to this world in the first movie that always means the most to me. Return of the King. I guess you're interested to hear both of your thoughts, but first on Return of the King, but then on Lord of the Rings as a whole and where you rank the three films in order. So, Mason. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten just quite how freaky the start of this film is. So... Uh, much like in the Two Towers, where you go straight back in, there's no backstory, and uh, you know, previously on Lord of the Rings, you don't get any of that. You just get a, a sequence where Smeagol turns into Gollum, and I thought that's the transformation of Angus Circus from Smeagol, uh, you know, seemingly human person into Gollum. The I don't even know what Gollum is, some sort of creature. It's it's so good. It's it's very well done. Perfect way to rejoin the story. Suddenly, you see that you're back with Gollum. You're back in the story. So I love the opening sequence. But that said, I mean, I don't know if I was just a bit fed up with the characters or I was maybe tired when I watched it, but I don't know. This film just didn't grab me as much as when I watched the other two. I found myself, I found myself thinking, uh, look, this is just more of the same. You've got travelling with Frodo, Sam and Gollum. Well, that's what we had. Well, certainly Frodo and Sam. That's what we had in the first film. We had the Battle of Gondor in this. Well, look, we saw that in Helm's Deep in the second film. I was thinking, this is 20 minutes of battle that I've just seen. So I, I wasn't, I don't know, when I was watching it, it felt a bit cold. I didn't feel any excitement or dread. And I just didn't really feel any emotional attachment to any of the characters, which I do kind of want from a film. I want someone who I can attach myself to. None of the characters in this I really was too fussed about. I will say, though, that an outlier is the spider sequence. Now, the spider sequence is properly thrilling, it's scary, it's intense. And for me, I thought it was a standout sequence in the entire three films. I was genuinely on my edge at the edge of my seat during that bit and I think if you pluck that that scene out, well the two or three scenes where you've got the spider, that's genuine horror. You're not in a fantasy film there, you're not in a, a action adventure film, you're in a horror film. And I thought that was superb. I'd completely forgotten that that was even in it, so I love that bit. Other bits that I enjoyed, well I appreciated that Orlando Bloom isn't in this film as much. I feel as though like Peter Jackson's realised that he's a bit of a nothing of a character and so cuts most of his scenes, so I like that. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I certainly, after watching the second film, I thought, well, this is good, but it's not as good as the first one. Well, unfortunately, I thought that the third one was, despite it winning all the awards, for me, ranks number three out of the three. And I'm going to go in reverse order. I'd go three, two, one, in terms of how I would rank them. The Fellowship first, Two Towers second, Return of the King third. But before I finish... Uh, we've had an occasional feature on this podcast, which is shit jobs in films. Um, there's a good one here. Uh, and I'm, uh, <laughs> you'll maybe you need to have watched the film to have seen it, but I'll explain it to you. All I'm going to say is it's the beacon lighters. <laughs> so, uh, to set the scene, if you're a, um, a, a village or a town who's being attacked and you want support from an allied town or city, then how you get that is that you light your beacon make it a, a fire and then a load of other beacons get lit in sequence until the beacon can be seen by the other town that you want and then they'll ride to your aid which is all very good but what i'm thinking is presumably these beacons lie unlit for years how often is he going to get attacked by a you know sauron which means that some guy is sat next to his beacon looking at the horizon seeing the other beacon which is not being lit and 
look, these beacons are not very accessible. There's a shot where we see them being lit in turn, and they're on mountaintops, they're on cliff sides. I'm just thinking, the guy who's lighting that beacon, what's he doing? How is he, how is he, is he commuting there? Does he live there? What's he eating? <laughs> the poor guy, he must be spending years thinking, and going home from work, speaking to his wife, and she's like, oh, how was today, mate? He's like, yeah, yeah still, still no beacons being lit. <laughs> just sat next to the beacon all day. Think of the view. I love the view. Love the view. <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 so I know I didn't not like this film. It's clearly a very, very good film. But because it's 11 Oscars, because the other two are so good, I did unfortunately find myself being a bit underwhelmed. Yeah, the, the same same view. Probably more, maybe not quite as negative as you, but maybe more in line with what you were thinking. And really covered all the sort of main points. I feel like the pacing's a little bit off earlier on, and it, it was the point that you said, Mason, like, though, you know, you're, like, gearing up for another battle, and you're like, oh, I've just had, like, a beast of a battle, and then, like, yeah. there's a little lull, and then there's another battle, and you know that's happening, and I'm a bit, like, it's more of the same. Uh, I do get a little bit annoyed with how they portray some of the characters, and it's a little bit hypocritical of me, because in some of the other films, you can probably pick up between the difference between the book and the film. But in this one, like, Faramir... Is just not how he's reflected in the books. I can't remember if that kid, you know, the Crabbit King, like there's way too much of him. And I don't really remember that from the books. So I'm erring on the side of saying that that's been a bit of a, I don't know, creative license for some, for some odd reason, really. I don't really know why. Like you say, the, the Dead Army, one of the things in the whole trilogy that isn't actually portrayed as well. And, you know, granted, you can't get them all right, considering they did such a good job with the other bits. So, yeah, I'm, and they say, oh, yeah, I've co- of course the ending, I mean, Christ, half an hour of like, just, you're actually wanting it to end. It, it feels like nitpicking because it's clearly still good and still a good end to the trilogy. But like you said, they definitely just like layered this with Oscars because they didn't give it to the previous ones. Oh, but massively. I'm a little bit different in that the Two Towers for me still is the best. Um, and I did think that way back when I first watched it, that was my favourite film. I remember we spoke about that in one of the previous episodes and we sort of said, I think, what you said, oh, that wasn't, that used to be your favourite and then you grew up into the <laughs> Gandalf the, the Grey or whatever. Like that, <laughs> but I'm still on the Two Towers. That That's my favourite one. The first one's, um, you know, very closely behind and then this one's a little, you know, a little bit further behind that. I always find it difficult to assess the Lord of the Rings films because I've seen them all so many times and I tend to think of them more as one whole as opposed to individual films. And it's interesting because they were filmed that way. They were all filmed back to back, which having seen the Hobbit films, and I don't dislike the Hobbit films as much as some people do, but it's just as well for that because Peter Jackson definitely allowed things to get too bloated, which I think is maybe part of the extended edition stuff as well. Now, I think I watched extended editions for all three of these the other two films does to add to it. I think this one, it doesn't in many ways. There's just some odd scenes that are added in. and So, I mean, Christy even filmed a scene for the Army of the Dead sequence after it had won the Oscar because he remarked at the time that this must be the only time that a Best Picture Oscar winning film is still having scenes shot for it after it's won its Oscar, <laughs> which he's probably right because nobody else bloody tinkers and stuff to yeah. that degree. It did win 11 uh, Oscar wins after 11 nominations. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Beaten Sea Biscuit, Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup, Best Original Score, Best Original Song for the Annie Lennox Song Into the West, Best Sound Mixing and Best Visual Effects. I definitely feel that a lot of these wins were 
make-up wins for not winning as much in the previous years because if you compare the contenders in 2001 and 2002, I would argue, you two might feel differently, that this year was the strongest bunch of films up against it, collectively. Really? What, Seabiscuit and Master and Commander? Well, not Seabiscuit, but well, I think Master and Commander's great. You've got Mystic River, Lost in Translation's great. You look yeah. at some of the other years, you've got things like Chicago won the previous year, A Beautiful Mind won the year before. Yeah, Beautiful Mind was tosh. <laughs> I don't know, they're both better. I mean, with, you've got your picks on the winners there, but they're two superior films to uh, E.G. Seabiscuit. Oh yeah, I agree, I agree oh, yeah, with that. Yeah. You're picking the worst one from this year and comparing it to the best of the previous years. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. What would we have voted for the winner of this year now? We've been pretty unanimous on some of the Lord of the Rings years, but um, I, I suspect we might have a bit different opinions here. So uh, let's go to you first, Bingham. So I would say on the basis that we decided the Oscars and in the previous episodes where we gave Oscars to Lord of the Rings, so therefore it wasn't the trilogy, wasn't good without anything, I would go with... I'm so tempted to say Master and Commander just to see what's in Mason's face. No, I'm, I'm going to say um, Lost in Translation. I'm also going to say Lost in Translation. Seabiscuit aside, I think any of these would have been worth the winners. Mason? Mystic River, I would have voted for. A good story, well told, properly acted, and um, that's what I got to cinema for. So that's what I'd have gone for. Very good. Excellent. Well, there we go. Two for Lost in Translation, one for Mystic River, and none of us would have given it to Return of the King. Although maybe if we were about at the time and we were Oscar voters, we'd have been swept up in Lord of the Rings fever and just given it all to it at the time. Now, we are going to find out where we're going next year, but a little heads up. We are at that time of year when we're coming into Oscar season, so the Oscar nominations are announced on the 12th of February, unless it gets delayed, like the Grammys did. So... That will be the episode after this next one. As uh, per last year, we'll likely have a wee additional episode as well where we get to rip the, sh- the songs to shred. Uh, oh, looking forward to that. <laughs> songs to shred, is that what I meant to say? I'm not quite sure what I meant to say there, but I muddled up in words. But where are we going to go before we enter into 2021, Bingham? So, you know, it's a really comprehensive process to pick a year. There's a lot of thought goes into it. So we are going back to the 80s because that is the decade which I think we've probably covered, at least haven't checked, but I would suspect that's the case. And I have picked this year based on the funny front cover of one of the films. So we're going to 1987. The first one is Moonstruck. And I would also say I have seen one of these five films that's also quite uh, good for the pod. So I won't be revisiting anything, I'll be watching it for the first time. So Moonstruck, 1987, American rom-com uh, drama film. It's got Nicolas Cage in it. It's also got Cher in it as well. So uh, we'll see We'll see how, see how that one is. Sounds interesting. <laughs> We've also got Hope and Glory, which is a comedy drama war film, written and directed by John Borman. Ken Mash vibes. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting mash vibes from that actually. <laughs> uh, the title is derived from the traditional British patriotic song "Land of Hope and Glory." So there you go, oh, is it British? Film. Is it a British film? Yeah, it must be. Macquarie uh, antenna. Oh, let's hope Fred Elliott turns up again. Yeah. <laughs> we then on to the film that I will be revisiting, which is "Fatal Attraction," which is obviously the American neurotic psychological thriller which has got Michael Douglas in it Glenn Close is in it who we were singing praises of many episodes ago and putting some cracking performances we're going to broadcast news which is 
James L. Brooks, uh, who was pretty big in the 80s. It's about daily emotional breakdowns of a, a reporter. Don't know who's in it because can't really see. You've really <laughs> done your prep today. <laughs> yeah, I've done my prep. Um, and this is the film that I picked that, that's made me pick this year. It's The Last Emperor. What the fuck is the cover about? It's got a wee baby, like with a hat, with a like military hat or, or like a you know an Asian king's hat. Uh, so this is an epic biological biological biographical drama film about the life of Puyi, the final emperor of China. Which is that I, the wee lad in the in the front cover? <laughs> yeah. It's gotta be. It's gotta it's be. Gotta be. I mean, surely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it looks interesting. Never heard of it, and I'm always up for learning new shit. So yeah. I've only seen one of these films too, the same one as you, Fatal Attraction. I've heard of the rest, but I know very little about some of them. So this this is going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, this is a good one. I don't know why, but I've got a feeling it's going to be a lot of shite this year. <laughs> I think you, you, well, you're, you've just been rude about films you've not heard of before. This year. Uh, maybe, maybe. I was going to say, let's just hope that it was better than my prep for, for this. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Right, well, we'll be back with you at some stage in the next few weeks with that episode before we turn our attention to 2021. We will post all the information on the the old social medias and tell you where you can find these films, justwatch.com, that's UK. Uh, If you did enjoy the episode, please tell a friend, please share, retweet, do all that nonsense. Uh, But thanks again for listening to Revisiting the Oscars. Thanks to my two co-hosts, Mason and Bingham. Cheers. Cheers. Catch you later. Speak to you all soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye. And if they follow